0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director and Paul Weber Endowed Chair of Politics, Science and Religion here at the University of Louisville. I'm joined today on the interviewer side of the mic by Dr. Shani Dasgupta, CAD's postdoctoral fellow. Shani, Happy New Year in the podcast world. How's it going?
1: Happy New Year. It's going great. Thank you.
0: All righty. Uh, thanks to the great leadership of our colleague, Tori Dahl. CAD's podcast channel has gotten freshened up. Episodes are available on the CAD website through the University of Louisville, as well as through Spotify and Apple podcasts. Just search Center for Asian Democracy. Subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future content. Uh, we are very excited today to kick off our new year uh, by featuring the research and perspective of Dr. Darren Beiler. Uh, Dr. Darren Byler is an anthropologist whose teaching and research examines the dispossession of stateless populations through forms of contemporary capitalism and colonialism in China, Central Asia, and Southeast Asia. His monograph, Terror Capitalism, Uyghur Dispossession and Masculinity in a Chinese City, from Duke University Press in 2021, examines emerging forms of media, infrastructure, economics, and politics in the Uyghur homeland in Chinese Central Asia. Um, He's going to be talking to us today, based on that research background, about the perhaps surprising wave of protest movements that sprang up um, around Xinjiang um, and uh, and COVID policy, both in that region as well as more broadly across China. Uh, Byler's current research follows up on the argument of his book to consider how contemporary capitalism and colonialism travels through digital infrastructure, uh, through systems from China to Malaysia, Uh, This multi sided project, supported by funding from Columbia's Global Reports series and a Loose Foundation and American Council of Learned Societies Fellowship, involves field research and in-depth interviews with technology workers, former detainees, and other stateless Muslim populations affected by the infrastructural power of digital surveillance along China's New Silk Road. Um, The role of digital surveillance and technology will also be coming up in our conversation for sure. Uh, That project will result first in a narrative-driven book titled In the Camps, China's High-Tech Penal Colony from Columbia Global Reports in 2021. Uh, Byler's work is also involved in a a variety of public-facing ways, including through Simon Fraser University's uh, Xinjiang documentation project featuring personal testimonies and archives, internet, internal police reports, translations, and other documents concerning the ongoing detention of Turkic Muslims in China and the erasure of their native knowledge. Uh, it's a body of research that is of long-term concern to the study of of human rights and democracy in China and across Asia. Um, But it's also a very timely topic because at the end of last year, um, uh, China's uh, COVID policies became tied up in a surprising protest movement that sprang up first in Xinjiang um, and then more broadly across the country. Um, China continues to grapple with the fallout from now abandoning its zero COVID policy. Um, And so the topic remains extremely timely, even as we move into the new year. Um, As you'll hear, a major theme in our conversation that really stood out to me was the impact of local ethnic politics on protests, especially within the region um, where the, uh, the local Uyghur population is policed, surveilled, Um, and responded to quite differently uh, than other populations, especially uh, the local uh, migrant labor population of Han Chinese. Um, So that really stood out to me. I don't know, uh, Ashani, from our conversation, what struck you most?
1: I think it was, I had a similar, uh, you know, I felt surprised that uh, COVID would lead to these, you know, large-scale protests, which in some ways um, was inclusive of a political minority that had been neglected for so long. And I did feel that the fact that the protests in Urumqi were mono-ethnic, with dominantly the Han Chinese uh, protesting, just showed how persecuted the political minorities are in their own sort of homelands.
0: Yeah, the different textures of protests uh, across different regions of the country and even internationally was an interesting theme of our conversation. So uh, without any further ado, let's turn to that conversation with Professor Darren (music) Byler. All righty. Thanks so much again to Dr. Darren Beiler for joining us today for our conversation. We really look forward to it.
2: Well, it's an honor to be here.
0: Maybe we could begin um, with the event that uh, triggered the most recent rounds of public protests in China, Um, a very prominent and tragic building fire um, that led to the death of Uyghur residents, um, led to a tide of protests in late 2022, um, especially focused on zero-COVID policy and and the PRC's approach to COVID policy. Um, For those in our audience who might not have followed the details of that event um, and how it led to protests, could you maybe begin by giving uh, a little perspective on how the tragic events of that day led to a broader set of protest mobilizations, both in Xinjiang and then a broader movement across China?
2: Sure. So uh, the fire that that happened in Urumqi, which is the capital of the Uyghur Autonomous Region in, in northwest China, um, it occurred uh, in the midst of a COVID lockdown where um, large... Segments of the population were being held in in sort of quarantine or just prevented from leaving their apartment complexes. Some of them were allowed to they, they would go down to the, the basement floor once a day to have to be tested for COVID, but they weren't permitted to leave the complex itself. Food was being delivered to them. In some cases, they were being locked in um, particular areas of buildings and so on. Um, and so when this fire broke out, um and in the Uyghur majority area of the city, um, people in the adjacent buildings could hear the screams of people in those buildings. They saw it burning and they saw that the um, government was not responding. Like the, it burned for hours before the, the fire trucks arrived. Um, you know, Some of the reason why there was a delay was because of the barriers that the state had set up to prevent people from accessing space. Um, some of it had to do with locked doors. Um, some of it had to do with parked cars that um, hadn't been driven for a long time and you know the residents who own those cars were not there so or, or they weren't allowed to come out to move their cars anyway there's a lot of complex bureaucracy that prevented a rapid response um, and so people were quite quickly were were they're blaming the government for the lack of response. Um, the videos that people took of the fire um, went viral almost immediately, first in the sort of the Uyghur community and, and the broader Xinjiang community, but then spread across the entire country. Um, and it kind of became symptomatic or emblematic of, of how the state was controlling COVID, um, and in some for some people, um, uh, it became emblematic of the political system itself um, and the forms of kind of draconian or arbitrary control that have been exerted on the population as a whole. Um, so it became a catalyst for a much broader movement. Yeah. That spread yeah, I mean, across the country.
0: We hear a lot these days about um, the the PRC's ability to regulate digital space. Um, I'm I'm actually curious. Was was there were there efforts made in that regard when these videos started to go viral? Was there any potential to sort of put the genie back in the bottle in terms of information that was uh, spreading around the country?
2: Yeah. So I mean, one of the interesting things was that there are all these nine one one kind of calls that are coming from people in the buildings that, as the fire is going on. Um, but they're all in Chinese and they're kind of appealing to the government to respond, to save them. Um, And those were the ones that went viral. So because they're in Chinese language, they could be understood by everyone, even though the speakers are often Uyghur that were making those videos. Um, And because they're sort of appealing to the government for help, like it's, I think, uh, something that is harder to censor. There were so many videos being made, um, not only of that initial event, but then of protests that that were sparked after, that I think the state really didn't have capacity to immediately erase them, um, to detect them all. There was just such an onslaught. But yes, now like you won't find those videos, those images, uh, I think, in the Chinese media sphere any longer. Uh, I think many of them have been deleted um, or censored. Um, so it's more of like a, a temporal sort of uh, you know, for a few days, yeah. these things were allowed to sort of spread.
0: Um, maybe you could tell us just a little bit more in the early days, especially about who was protesting. So you've already referenced that Xinjiang is a complex place. We have a local Uyghur population, uh, as well as a, a sort of sizable local Han community. Um, in those initial reactions, it sounds like there was already bridging across that divide. Is that is that true very early on?
2: That's true to a certain extent, um, especially in the digital sphere, uh, because the videos that Uyghurs were making were traveling into the Han communities and being circulated by them. Um, But Uyghurs themselves, because they've been so targeted by the state as potentially terrorists or extremists, and because hundreds of thousands of them have been sent to internment camps, um, even some of the family members of people that died in the fire were, have been missing in these internment camps or in prisons. Um, And so for them, they know that if they protest, like physically protest, um, or if they circulate videos that are being banned by the state, that they could be subjected to to really harsh treatment, uh, to detention and so on. Han citizens on the other hand, which is the majority group in China, I think they feel a lot more latitude uh, to to protest because their political loyalty isn't being questioned in the same way as Uyghurs. Instead, they're viewed as you know uh, citizens with rights, with civil protections, and um, and so they're the ones that really took took to the streets. They're the ones that um, um, really amplified the videos of the fire and so on. And they also, in that process, um, sort of erased the ethnicity of the people that died often. They they um, instead talked about them just as Chinese citizens, look what the government is doing. Um, and so Uyghurs became sort of like any other Chinese citizen just for <laughs> for the purposes of the protest. Um, and in doing that, they, the, the other protesters sort of erased some of the trauma, the histories of trauma that, that Uyghurs have experienced over the past years. Um, 5 years but even longer for decades really
1: yeah uh thanks for that i i just want to kind of uh pay you back on david's question uh so are the protests sort of indicated did they did they show also common politics between the two underclasses, the Uyghurs and the Han migrant workers, uh, both of who are marginalised but in very different ways? Uh, despite you know the the particular like you said targeting of the Uyghurs as splittists or terrorists by the PRC state, and are there any indicators of communication or coordination during and past during the protest between the two groups? Uh, And especially since you said there is a sort of invisibilization of the precarious and sort of treacherous situation that the Uyghurs are in. Uh, Hmm. So do you think that the protest uh, sort of fomented a solidarity across the two groups, or was it detrimental in, uh, did it further invisibilize the situation of the Uyghurs?
2: Well, I would say that most uh, Uyghurs were very happy that Han people were protesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't as though um, they saw it as a a negative act uh, or an invisibilization of their suffering necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, They just understood that their Han people are allowed to protest, but we are not. Um, And I don't know that the Han people necessarily recognize that. Some of the people that were protesting um, that kind of led the protests in Urumqi were, were people from the People's Construction and Production Corps, which is a sort of settler colony, mm-hmm. system of settler colonies that have been set up across the Uyghur region. Um, it, many of those folks are also involved in sort of surveillance work and you know carrying out the internment, uh, like mass internment campaign in relation to Uyghurs, um, and so when they're protesting about um, the restrictions related to COVID, I think many Uyghurs recognize that these people that are doing the protests have in the past, very recent past, also been our, their oppressors. Um, and so it's it's difficult to sort of overcome those histories in, you know, in a moment. Um, at the same time, I think we do see growing solidarity among uh, Chinese protesters, Han protesters, Mm -hmm. and the Uyghurs, um, people recognizing that the restrictions on movement related to COVID mirror some of the restrictions on movement related to counterterrorism that have been rolled out in Xinjiang. Um, And so, you know, people would say things like, we're all Xinjiang people now. (laughs) Um, And I don't know what they meant exactly by that, if they meant that, like, You know, we've also been locked down in the same way for COVID. Or if they are also thinking about this older uh, process of, of of controlling and and transforming society. Um, so it's there's in at a certain level there's there's just not enough information as well in terms of like being able to do a survey and you know interview people. Like we're getting bits and pieces of information from people. Um, But it's hard to know exactly um, what is the general sentiment. Uh, So this is just my own impressions, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious, sort of building on those impressions. I mean, you know, those of us who study social movements know that sustaining protest is always challenging, especially in sort of costly authoritarian contexts. Um, uh, But these protests have been, at least relatively or were for a time, relatively sustained, not just in uh, Xinjiang, but more broadly across uh, the country. Um, Do you have a sense for how these protests were able to sustain and organize themselves over time in such a challenging environment it sounds like initially it was really sort of uh, sincere kind of spontaneous popular uh, uh, protest and and grievance but over time I imagine that there had to be uh, some kind of capacity building or some kind of sort of routinization of of the protest but maybe not what have you gathered on that front.
2: Yeah, so I think there was a sort of a serialization of protests, like moving from city to city across the entire country. Um, and because it's sort of spontaneous, um, the state couldn't respond, wasn't didn't have capacity to respond immediately. Um, and so there's kind of, you know, a wildfire kind of spread uh, that that happens. Um, but in terms of how it's sustained, so what I've seen is that in other cities, particularly in eastern China or and and in, in, in the south, um, labor organizers, uh, you know, coming out of the Foxconn protests, which are also a part of the spark of the broader movement, because those images had also gone viral of migrant workers, you know, jumping over fences to get out of the controlled environment of the Foxconn factories and so on. Um, so labor organizers, I think played a role in terms of, of organizing protest. Um, feminist organizers as well were involved uh, to a, a pretty significant degree um, in eastern China cities. Um, so it's people that had you know been involved in protests for other uh, regarding other issues, I mean, in general like they're protesting government control often, Um, when it comes to labor and and feminist liberation kinds of movements in China. Um, And so it's, it is a common target, the government, Um, but, you know, now they are mobilizing across a whole bunch of different sort of class divisions and, and, you know, and, and, and beyond sort of a gendered um, approach to protest. Um, But I think having the, having the organizational capacity and knowledge of how to, Conduct a protest, lead a protest, like those things were were utilized um, in these protests.
1: Um, so I had a question: this, the about basically what's happened in Xinjiang since the protests. So the Uyghur, Uyghur community has faced a unique uh, coercion in recent years, especially through sort of the infamous network of internment camps in the region, and um, the PRC state. Act clearly has the capacity for significant coercion of the population. So how has it been for the inhabitants, and especially for the Uyghurs since the protests, and has there been any changes in state policies, particularly with respect to the Uyghurs?
2: Yeah, so I mean, uh, just to follow up on the last question as well, like, you know, why the think like, why the protests eventually you know were less sustainable? I think have to do with the government actually responding and relaxing the COVID restrictions and saying you no longer have to have this health code app on your phone in order to enter a supermarket and so on. Like they basically have moved past um, a lot of the the policies that people were protesting, and so I think people who who see that as their primary issue in terms of why they're protesting, I think they feel as though they've accomplished what they set out to do. Um, And in the Uyghur region, a a similar dynamic has happened. Um, Most places are now open in terms of in relation to the COVID issues, like they're not being restricted. Movement isn't being restricted. They're not being tested in the same ways. Um, We've also started to see the beginnings of uh, Uyghurs being able to apply for passports, um, those that are in urban context, those that have good family backgrounds and so on, um, which is a, a really new development. Um, and, and for many Uyghurs a hopeful sign that the state is beginning to relax some of the most, some, some of its policies. That at the same time, that doesn't mean that people that were in camps before or in prisons before or in assigned labor in factories, that they're, you know, being allowed to move. Like those older restrictions before COVID and during COVID are still in place. Um, So for the vast majority of Uyghurs, not much has changed.
1: Uh, So that's actually interesting that certain, you know, certain policies are being relaxed by the uh, by the state. So one of the things my Tibetan activist friends have uh, been talking about, and it, it, I think the conversation has become more amplified now, uh, is the mass DNA collection in Tibet since 2019, uh, including now from kindergarten students as a form of crime detection. So how do you think this a new form of technological policing, like, you know, ge- genetic data gathering will impact both the resistance movement and the future of the political landscape of China, particularly with relation to the minorities.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the other thing that's happened is that people that were involved, especially in leadership positions in protests, mm-hmm. it, they were okay for a few days, perhaps, but very quickly the police caught up to who those people were. Um, they're they're leaving a digital trail um, as they you know, are involved in protests in terms of who they're connecting with. Um, and so many leaders have been detained across the entire country, people that were in involved in the protests. Um, and so that's a kind of digital forensics you know, data valence that's happening where um, they're looking at patterns of movement, uh, who's connecting with whom, um, and they're you know, sort of trying to break up the, the social network. Um, this is something that comes out of military science, basically, counterinsurgency theory is about full spectrum intelligence and and being able to track movement um, and predict uh, behavior in advance. I don't know exactly how the DNA collection is going to play out in terms of, you know, how it will be used to predict criminality or um, after the fact to do sort of forensics science. But in general, this is the way that uh, China is moving and many states are moving. They're collecting biometric data from all citizens. Um, and that means, you know, measuring faces and eye, irises and so on and also DNA. Um, some of it may have to do more with public health and kinds of initiatives. Um, and in China, that means um, family planning as well. Um, so if, if there are attempting to crack down on what they call illegal births. Um, I can see DNA or genetic testing being used um, as part of, you know, criminal cases of of people who have had more children than they're allowed to, and so on. Um, In general, surveillance is about overseeing. It's about control. Um, There's a a conservative politics of of an authoritarian politics that's built into surveillance in a general sense. Uh, And so I think we have to look at dna collection as part of that part of that process
0: you've already talked a little bit about this um just to get back to the protest side of things for, for a minute um about how sort of as things grew to the national level um networks and protest uh, organizations got involved that um had experience in protest and also their own kind of political um agendas um that they that they brought to, to protest um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. As things move to a national scale, does protest look different in um, Xinjiang than it does elsewhere in the country? Did were the goals of the protesters stated in different terms? Were their tactics different in other parts of the country? Um, just sort of as much as you can tell from from afar, the texture of protest um, yeah. uh, outside of the region as opposed to mm-hmm. close to where the events actually occurred.
2: Yeah, so I would say in Xinjiang, the, the protests were almost exclusively mono-ethnic, um, like it, they were carried out by Han people. Even though Xinjiang is like one of the most ethnically diverse places in the country, um, in Xinjiang, it was the Han people that felt they had the power and ability to protest. Whereas Uyghurs would tell me that they like we yelled from inside our inside our apartment complex to support them, but we didn't go out. Or you know, we stopped sharing the videos as soon as we realized that, that they were being taken down because we knew what could happen. Um, so outside of Xinjiang, I think you saw a lot more. You'll see there was quite a bit more uh, inter-ethnic sort of solidarities. People like, for instance, in Lanzhou in Gansu province or Ningxia uh, where Hui people, which is a Chinese Muslim group that isn't targeted in the same way as Uyghurs, they joined you know, their Han neighbors in protesting. Um, I think similar things happened in Southwest China in places like... But there have been
0: expressions of sort of Muslim solidarity in those protests when the Wei community was involved or no?
2: I don't know enough. Um, I I think they're primarily uh, concerned with... Hui experiences themselves with the zero COVID policy because there was this fairly famous incident where a, a Hui child died um, because it couldn't re- didn't receive medical treatment in a timely fashion due to the quarantine restrictions. Um, so that, that was something that many Hui people were really upset about, and and everyone in the country as well. Um, so I. I don't know. I don't know if they were thinking in solidarity or not. I know like in Shanghai that like they went to protest on a Road um, because you know they wanted to show solidarity with what had happened in Xinjiang, but I don't know if they were thinking about the Uyghurs when they were doing that, or if they were just thinking about Xinjiang as this other province um, where people are also suffering within China. I think once you get outside of China itself like in diaspora, that is really where you start to see a lot more solidarity being built across different groups. Um, and some of that has to do with the Hong Kong diaspora and Taiwan diaspora folks that are quite invested in these protests. Um, and there are also Uyghurs that are leading protests in cities like, like my own city here in Vancouver. Um, and really for the first time, many, many Han people, Chinese people came out in solidarity with Uyghurs and um, you know talked about the camps um, as something that was um, an element in in what they were protesting. Um, but that my sense is that most of that sort of intergroup solidarity happened outside of the country rather than in the country itself.
1: Oh yeah I it's a really interesting to hear you say about the sort of monoethnic uh character of the. Uh, protests in Urumqi because I think Lhasa also had a huge uh, number of migrant Han protests. Uh, while the Tibetans did not participate, so that it kind of resonates with the fa- feeling that these that political minorities uh, consider themselves a second class citizens and are susceptible to the violence of the
0: state. Tied to um, tied to the COVID policy. Yeah, yeah, Lhasa.
1: yeah. In Lhasa too, it was about tied to the COVID policy. Um, Uh, So uh, a question I had was about the sort of wide-scale protest in China, and it raises, you know, echoes of the past pro-democratic protests in uh, protest movements. So do you see um, a desire for democratization in these protests? Uh, Is the struggle against the zero COVID policy of the central government a part of a larger desire for political change?
2: Yeah, I mean, there again, it's a little bit difficult to gauge just because of the lack of Uh, data that we have. Um, But my sense is that in China itself, there were people that were protesting sort of the Xi administration in general, um, and asking for Xi to step down, um, wanting a different political system altogether. Um, Those may have been people that have been, uh, were were not simply responding spontaneously um, to the COVID issues, but had um, sort of more developed political consciousness about you know, the kind of country they want, and so on. But I think in general, we see uh, Chinese people increasingly upset with the direction the government, the, the government is taking, and the and the gov- and the state is taking, especially among youth. Um, I'm meeting all of these international students who are coming abroad um, or trying to come abroad, who are talking about the discourse of of running you know, to pow, which means like just to leave leave the country because they don't see a future for themselves there. Um, And and that is an interesting development because I think in the past, the Chinese youth, when they traveled abroad, they they did so because maybe they could get more opportunities abroad, but they wanted to go back to China. They saw their future in China. And now there seems to be a shift where they're thinking that there is no future for them in China um, and that the government is taking their country in a direction they don't want to go in. Um, and I think that sort of emergent political consciousness that is related to these protests in some ways um but is also part of an a, a broader kind of discontent with the direction the state is headed um that is probably the the, the biggest impact that these protests are are, are going to leave, which is you know, this emergent political consciousness is' going to shape the rest of the lives of these young people uh. I don't know that it's going to lead to regime change or anything like that. Um, it's not the same as Tiananmen Square, for sure. Um, but I think it does um, mean that there's going to be at least some part of a new generation of Chinese people um, who will think in really critical ways about their state. And and that's, you know, I think, in general, a good thing.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned um, already that obviously, partially in response to these protests, uh, the Chinese state has uh, has pretty drastically altered its COVID policy um, in the last um, couple of months, uh, even with significant short-term costs to public health that, that it's bearing uh, because of that. Um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about how those changes in zero COVID policy have impacted the protest movement, have, have the protests essentially dissipated in the, in the recent weeks. Um, or how have, uh, how have these state changes in COVID policy changed the, the protest environment?
2: Yeah, so I think it, some of the energy has been dissipated because the state has actually responded to the protesters and done so pretty quickly. Um, I think also removing the leaders, you know, detaining the many of the leaders of the protests has really put a chill on in terms of how people want to engage in protests in the future. Um, so those are probably two of the most you know, the the, the biggest factors. Um, in terms of like the costs of, you know, what this has done in terms of rising COVID cases and so on, um, you know, I think it's pointing out that there's been a lack of sort of vaccine um, distribution and promotion of vaccine um, across the country. Um, and you know, that's why I think the population is, is, is more vulnerable now um, than maybe we're seeing in other places in the world. Um, I think the state is going to try to correct some of those issues, but it does sort of seem as well that like they're saying like it's either zero COVID policy or no policy at all. Um, and um, that sort of drastic shift, I think, is, is you know, it, it is detrimental um, to society and I think means that the, the general population is probably more afraid in some ways. Um, And also maybe less trusting of the government uh, because they see that there's there's inflexibility in the state um, and a sort of lack of concern about basic well-being of people.
1: Um, So taking sort of a broader view, uh, it's obviously striking how these protests started off because of a tragedy that impacted the Uyghur community um, that was already facing a lot of violence and a lot of surveillance and uh, state domination in that sense. Um, But is there any sense that these events have impacted broader opinions in, um, you know, in mainland China about the Uyghur internment camps or has it generally impacted, do you think that, uh, you know, even the diaspora uh, uh, protests might impact the way in which uh, the Chinese state handles this situation from here on?
2: I think so. I think um, that the, so there's, I think that people are more aware about what's happened in Xinjiang, and I think they understand to a much greater extent the capacity of the state to enact that kind of a system, that it really could be true, that it is true, because they've seen how a similar kind of dynamic has been applied to their own communities now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, not to say that they're the same, that there's an op-ed in the New York Times some time ago about how has Shanghai been Xinjiang. um wow. I don't think that's the case um because there's a a colonial and a settler kind of dynamic that's in Xinjiang and that's absent in other places. Um, but still, some of the tactics, the technology, the infrastructure, the types of arbitrary control, those are the same sorts of systems that were used in Xinjiang um and so I think they're, they're thinking a lot more carefully, at least some some Chinese folks are, especially the international students I engage with, about what national security actually means, Um, uh, how much of it is about just making entire groups of people disposable um, and sort of manufacturing a sense of threat. Um, So I think the state now has a much more difficult time sort of expanding its legitimacy or making its case um, that it's, um, that what it says is in fact the truth. I think there's many more people that question that, that sort of thing. At the same time, there's a lot of people in China who are really just sort of concerned about their own immediate community. Yeah, they're not engaged in politics or don't think about politics as a a major aspect of their life. Um, And they may be engaged in those protests, but now they think things are going back to normal and, and everything's okay. Xinjiang seems really far away to them. They don't know much about it. Um, and so people are, are sort of moving on. I imagine that's probably the dominant sort of uh, position that most people in China are in. Um, but there are, there is those people that are, are really coming alive in a different way um, as, as a result of the COVID policies and the protests.
0: Yeah, well, you, you know, you used a word there, legitimacy, that um, is talked about a lot in relationship to the uh, to the PRC regime. Um, and, you know, for the past, however, couple of decades, this balance between economic growth and social control that they've been able to to maintain, um, uh, you know, a sense of um, well, I don't know if you would use the word legitimacy, but it, at least a sense of compliance from much of the population, if not legitimacy. Um I'm curious how you think about that in in light of um, the broader uh, changes in COVID policy, not just this protest movement, but the broader sort of regime's handling of the public health and economic uh, dimensions of the COVID crisis. Um, do you think like a decade from now, as we look back on this period, this will be seen as kind of a, a turning point in the party's ability to, to balance economic performance and social control? Um, or will they be able to, as they've done in previous maybe episodes of instability, kind of uh, steady the, steady themselves, update policy, roll out increased vaccinations, um, and uh, and return to that balance that they've struck so successfully in the last couple of decades?
2: Well, it's hard to hard to know. It's hard to predict. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, so in the past, when there's been a national crisis, like for instance the the reasons they give to detain Uyghurs is that there's a a foreign influence afoot, that foreign Islam is taking over the Uyghur society, um, that, you know, and this is a, you should have foreign in scare quotes, because, like, Islam is (laughs) part of China and has been for many, many centuries, Um, but that's the, the way that they talk about this, is the threat of the foreign. The foreign other is the reason why there's a problem in China, so if it's not Islam, it's the United States, it's Japan. Um, you know, any conflict major issue in China is deflected and said is is really a, a fault of something outside of the PRC. And so the the response of citizens should be to stand with their government in fighting against this foreign threat. Um, I think the COVID uh issue is Quite clearly, in the minds of almost all Chinese citizens, um, a sort of self own that this is something that the Chinese state has done to itself, um, and really is not. There's no foreigner or foreign issue, foreign thing that you can blame for it. I mean, they've talked about you know, COVID actually came from not not from China but elsewhere. That's like a state narrative. I don't think many people believe it. Um, they've also talked about. Um, the protests themselves being instigated by foreign forces or something. They talk about this in relation to Hong Kong as well. I think now people are starting to see through some of that. Um, it it's it's too soon to tell if that,, um, if there's actually been a change in in how people perceive the state, Um, One test already is that, you know, countries like Japan, United States, Canada, other places have have now put restrictions on Chinese citizen traveling, Chinese citizens traveling um, because of COVID-related issues. Um, And the state has latched onto that as, you know, another instance of anti-Chinese sentiment in the world. Um, I don't know if that will be a successful way of of narrating why, why people are being restricted in some of their travel. Um, yeah, it's it's too soon to tell. I I, I don't know um, how people like how lasting this is in terms of how 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 much effect it will have on their psyche. I think for those that younger generation, um, they they maybe you know once they've started to question, they won't be able to go back. Um, and so potentially this potentially could be a sort of threshold moment, but I say that very tentatively.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much to, to Dr. Darren Beiler for um, sharing uh, your own uh, expertise with us. You're someone who's been paying careful attention to this uh, troubled region for a long time, which is why you have such expertise to share with us on these uh, slightly unexpected protests that broke out at the end of last year. Um, so thank you so much again. We really appreciate your time.
2: Well, thanks again for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: And for our listeners, uh, we're glad to be back with you in the new year of 2023. This will be our first episode, and there will be more to come before long. Uh, Keep your eyes on the Center for Asian Democracies Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram accounts, um, and subscribe to the Inside Asia podcast on services like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be back before long. Until then, be well.